you're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Mission Church is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy the message from our Sunday gathering. Hey, what's up, Mission Church? My name is Travis, and I serve as the pastor of Preaching and Theology here at Mission. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, feel free to check out the screen below. You can follow along there. Now, this morning, we're going to continue our teaching series through the book of Acts that we've called Empowered for Jesus' Mission. And like I tell you each and every week, if you're a follower of Jesus who is trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone, to make you right with God, Jesus is not done with you. He is not done with me. Right now, at this very moment, He is ruling and reigning over His church and empowering His church here on earth. And today we are going to see that Jesus is empowering us to trust in Him and Him alone. So if you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 8. And as you're doing that, I'd like to invite you to pray along with me, and then we'll dive in. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your grace and your mercy that you give us so unconditionally through your son, Jesus. And I just pray that right now, Father, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. I pray, Father, for each and every person that is watching, that you will speak to them through your word and that you will drive the truth of your word even deeper into my heart as I preach them. God, we ask that you work and have your way in us, all for your glory, our joy, as well as for the good of those around us. We pray all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'll never forget when my wife put something called cauliflower mashed potatoes on my plate. I mean, when those things were on my plate, they looked like mashed potatoes. They smelled kind of like mashed potatoes. But when I put that in my mouth, were they mashed potatoes? Absolutely not. They tasted nothing like it. You see, they looked real, but were they real? No. How about spaghetti squash? Who has ever had that? I can remember having a plate put before me with a bunch of sauce on it, and underneath it, it looked like pasta. Yet when I put that into my mouth, it did not taste like pasta. Why? Because it wasn't pasta. It looked real, but friends, it was not real. It was squash, spaghetti squash. Today we are going to see that there's a guy who looks like he's a follower of Jesus. This guy has been baptized. This guy has believed in something about Jesus. But what we are going to see is that he's not really a follower of Jesus. So if you got a Bible, look in Acts chapter 8 verse 9. Here's what we read. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in the city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest and they said, This man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. So last week we saw that this guy by the name of Philip, who was a Jew, went down into the city of Samaria and he preached to them about Jesus. And you might remember that was an absolutely huge deal. Why is that? It's because Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Yet Stephen is led by the Spirit. He goes into Samaria and to a group of people in which he would have huge racial as well as religious tensions. And what does he do? He preaches Jesus with his words. And he demonstrates who Jesus is with his actions. And right here at this point, we see that Luke focuses in on one of those guys in Samaria by the name of Simon who practiced sorcery. Now, it's important for you to not get misunderstand this. What Simon is doing is not like magic tricks, you know, a little sleight of hand. 
My son will come up to me oftentimes with a deck of cards and he'll say, hey, dad, check this out. And with that, he will make a card disappear. He's actually pretty good at it. If you ever meet him and you ask him, he might show you. Yet this is not what Simon is doing. More than likely, what Simon is doing is empowered by the demonic. Most people believe that what he is doing is a combination of scientific knowledge with medicine and astronomy and math along with charms, dreams, and horoscopes. Essentially, he was known as an expert in the occult and he claimed to be what? Somebody. Kind of like Ron Burgundy, right? He's kind of well known. He's important. He's a big deal. People know who he is. Now today, this would be like people who, who read horoscopes or crystals or claim to tell fortunes. Or people like the person I read about recently who took a grilled cheese that their 10-year-old made that, had, that looked like it had the image of uh, Mother Mary on it, had a bite out of it, and she ended up selling this, no lie, sold this for $28,000. And we'll see shortly that Simon is in the occult and he wants to use Jesus for what reason? to make a profit. But notice that Simon wasn't the only one who thought he was a big deal. Other people thought he was a big deal. They claimed that he was the what? The great power of God. They are praising Simon as if he was a God. And in Simon, you and I see what I believe is the essence of sin. Think about what Simon is doing here. His entire lifestyle is an attempt to dethrone God. And when you look at the original temptation all the way back in the book of Genesis, we see that Adam and Eve are in a garden that God had created and cultivated for them. They are able to eat from any tree in that garden except for one. And it is while they're in that garden, Satan comes up to them and listen to what Satan does to tempt them. Genesis 3 verse 4 says this, No, you certainly will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat, of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is that temptation? Is it not to dethrone God and to become gods ourselves? You see, whenever we seek to live autonomous, self-sufficient lives, it is an attempt to dethrone God. And many of us, we know what this is like. You do not have to be a parent to understand this. Just simply try to babysit some kids. I can remember early in my life when I was like a teenager watching and babysitting some kids for this, this couple in the church. It was a Friday night and when I went to put those kids to bed, one of them came up to me and said, hey, it's Friday. We always get to stay up late on Friday night. Now I looked right back at that child and I said, I didn't know that you were the babysitter. How about this? You just go to bed, right? I coach a soccer team. And a couple weeks ago, one of the players came up to me and said, Hey, coach, I think we need to do less drills and more scrimmaging. I looked right back at that player and I said, Hey, that's interesting. I didn't know you were the coach. How about no? Think about what would happen if I allowed those kids to stay up as late as they want. Think about this player if I listened to him and allowed him to control the team. Those kids would be a real pain to be around, would they not? Staying up late, they'd probably be angry and grumpy and all that. And if I allowed this player just to simply run the team, he would never learn how to trap. He would never learn how to pass. And he would try to dribble through everybody. And this is Simon's main problem. He is a creature who's attempting to dethrone God by being a creator, a God, by trying to find his identity in what he does, as well as in the approval and praise of others. And let me ask you a question. When a creature tries to be creator, how does that usually work out? Terribly. Parents, if you try to find your identity 
in your ability as a parent and in the behavior of your kids, how's that gonna work out for you? Students, if you try to find your ultimate identity in your grades and your degrees, how's that gonna work out for you? And all of you who are athletes, if you try to find your identity in your trophies and in your performance, how's that gonna work out for you? You see, Simon is trying to find his identity in living as if he is God, finding his approval and the praise of others and finding his identity in his abilities. But who is he when somebody better comes along? And parents, who are you when your kids don't behave? And students, who are you when you fail that class? And athletes, who are you when you get that injury and you're no longer able to play again? You see, Simon cannot compete with Philip. We're going to see that. Or better yet, he cannot compete with what God is doing through Philip. And watch how he reacts. Verse 12, But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. So Philip goes into Samaria and he preaches the good news about the kingdom of God and Jesus. And notice, friends, what Philip does. He preaches, he proclaims good news. That means he used his words. Philip absolutely went into Samaria. He served the people. He healed the sick. He casted out demons. Yet serving people does not save people. Many of us have heard, and you even heard me quote this last week, heard this statement that is just so unbiblical. It goes like this, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. What's the problem with that? It's not in the Bible. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 says this, How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, it says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the message about Christ. Four times in that passage, Paul says that faith comes by seeing. No, he says faith comes comes by hearing. Yes, you and I are to live out the gospel that we believe in. But friends, we are to preach that gospel we are living. And what Philip shared is good news, not good advice. And there is a huge difference between those two things. Advice is oftentimes what you must do. News is about what has been done. If you turn on the news at night or you turn on SportsCenter, most often, what do the newscast or newscasters and anchors, what do they talk about? What has already taken place, right? They talk about what has taken place in time and space and history. They can only speculate about what is coming in the future. And the news that Philip proclaimed was about what God had done through Jesus, through Jesus' perfect life, through his substitutionary death, and through his resurrection to bring all those who trust in Jesus back into a relationship with himself. Think about what is in, like, what's in that, that Jesus lived a perfect life. Have you lived a perfect life? No. Who did Jesus live that perfect life for? He lived that for you in obedience to God. But Jesus also died as a substitute for you on the cross. Many of us have had a substitute teacher in middle school and high school. And when that substitute teacher came into the room, what were they doing? They were filling in 
for that teacher that was absent, either because they were on vacation or because they were sick. And on the cross, Jesus didn't just die for you. Jesus died instead of you as your substitute. And the scripture says that God raised him from the dead, brought him back to life, resurrection. Why? To show emphatically that what he did is enough to bring anyone who trusts in him back into a relationship with God. And people in Samaria were leaving the occult. They were leaving behind Simon and they were trusting in Jesus and being baptized. Yet Luke tells us that Simon believed and was what? He too was baptized. Yet I think you and I are to ask ourselves simply this. Was his baptism and was his faith legit? Was it genuine? We're going to see here in a moment that Peter rebukes Simon for his unbelief. So what is going on? Well, notice that Luke says that, that Simon was baptized, and who did Simon follow after he was baptized? He followed around Philip. Why? Because he was amazed at the signs and miracles he was doing. We'll see more clearly in a bit that Simon seems to be following the messenger Philip, but not placing his trust in the one whom the message is about, and his name is Jesus. Why is that? He likes what he's seeing, and he wants to get in on the power and the miracles that Philip is performing. You see, I think what Simon is doing is he's believing in Jesus to get the same power of Philip, to get that power from the Spirit, but he does not want Jesus himself. I don't think he wanted Jesus, but he wanted what Jesus could do for him. Think about what is going on here. Are you and me following Jesus more like a Santa Claus or a genie, or are we following him as Lord and Savior? Friends, there is a huge difference between those two. I've talked with people who've come into my office and they'll essentially say to me, Pastor, I trusted in Jesus. I believed in Jesus. I was baptized. I've been living a good moral life, yet I have this suffering right now. What is this about? This is not fair. This is not right. And the question I oftentimes have to ask is just simply this. Are you treating Jesus more like Santa or Lord and Savior? I can remember having a group of high school students come into me and like into my office and they said, Pastor, we want to preach and teach like you do. I want to follow Jesus. And when I asked them, why do you want to follow Jesus? They started talking about how they wanted to do what I did. Stand up before hundreds of students on Sunday and talk to them and have those students follow them. Go to conferences and camps full of students, thousands of students, and preach to them. You see, what did these guys want? They didn't want Jesus. They wanted Jesus's platform, if you will, to make much of themselves, treating Jesus more like Santa instead of Lord and Savior. And if you get to heaven and you have everything you want there, all your friends are there, your family is there, your favorite food and your favorite hobbies and sports and all that, but Jesus is not there, would you be satisfied? Could it be possible you're following Jesus more about him being Santa than being Lord and Savior? Now we question Simon, but what was true of Simon is not true of everybody else. Listen to what happens in verse 14. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, as you read that, I know some of you are like, what is going on here? And what we're about to encounter is a bit theological, but I believe you can hang with me. 
The apostles are still alive, and we know from history that many of them were martyred and died, and that one of them, John, was actually exiled to the island of Patmos. Yet, they are still living during this time. So what happens? Peter and John, they go to Samaria to check it out. And what happens here, mission, is not necessarily normative. As you and I read the book of Acts, we have to ask ourselves this question. Is what, happen, is, what is happening here normative or is it exceptional? For example, in Acts chapter 2, we see that tongues of fire come down on the believers in Jesus, the followers of Jesus. And immediately, all of them are given the ability to speak in known languages. Yet, do we see that happen again in the book of Acts? Do we see that happen again anywhere in the Bible, in the rest of the Bible? No. Why is that? Because what happened there was exceptional. It's not normative. And what we see here is also not normative. Elsewhere in Acts, as people come to faith in Jesus and they believe, they are instantaneously, at that same moment, they place their faith and trust in Jesus. They receive the Holy Spirit. So what is going on? You might remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus told his followers that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And for eight entire chapters, they've still been in Jerusalem. This is the very first time the gospel has ever gone outside Jerusalem. And where does it go? To the hated Samaritans. And it's almost as if Peter and John are going there as dignitaries to validate the inclusion of the Samaritan people into the church. Many of us who have lived here in Las Vegas lamented for years the fact that we did not have a Chick-fil-A. I can remember, here, remember moving here in 2002 and people would talk about how they just want a Chick-fil-A. And I think it was in 2017 that Chick-fil-A finally came to Las Vegas. You know, national, or national news was made about it. Local dignitaries from our city, people from the corporation talked about it. The news broadcasted it. Why? To validate that chicken had come to Las Vegas. Just this morning, I was watching a news report about Sunset Park. There were local dignitaries there, commissioners. They even cut a ribbon to, to symbolize what? 24 pickleball courts had come to Sunset Park. And so you had all these local people there to celebrate it. And that is kind of what is going on here. Throughout the book of Acts, we see kind of these ceremonies in which the apostles would show up in Acts 2, in Acts 8, and in Acts 10. As the gospel came to different people, the apostles would come, kind of like a ribbon-cutting ceremony, to say and validate that the gospel had come to this place. Yet did people who came to faith in Jesus after this moment, did the apostles show up? And did they celebrate that and validate that? No. Why? Because anybody from this point forward in Samaria that became a follower of Jesus and placed their trust in Jesus, at that very moment, they received the Holy Spirit. And the same is true for you, and the same is true for me. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 that the normative experience for a person who comes to faith in Jesus is that they receive the Holy Spirit. And he talks about that when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, He is a seal, He's a guarantee, kind of like earnest money on a house, that God has promised that He will what? That we belong to Him and that we will be with Him forever. You see, the Spirit constantly reminds you and me over and over again that we belong to Jesus. And not everyone who receives the Holy Spirit in the Bible immediately spoke in what? Other known tongues. Rather, what happens in the Bible? 
From this point forward, we see that anybody who trusts in Jesus receives the Spirit at that moment. What happens here, friends, is not normative. It's exceptional. And at Mission Church, we believe that baptism pictures a person's faith in Jesus as well as their belonging to a church, which is why we ask people at Mission Church, do you welcome this person into the family of God? Hopefully that makes sense. If it doesn't, send me an email and I'll try to clean it up. Yet what we see from this point forward is that Simon sees this, he watches this, and notice his actions. Tell me if you think this is a genuine believer in Jesus. Listen to what it says in verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power so also so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord, if possible, your heart's intent might be forgiven, may be forgiven. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so nothing you have said may happen to me. Now, it wasn't uncommon for people who practiced sorcery and magic to go up to other people who practiced sorcery and magic and try to buy their trade or buy their tricks. And when Simon sees that Peter and John laid their hands on these people and that the Holy Spirit came upon them, what did he do? He wanted to purchase that ability for himself. I think what Simon is doing is going, hey, I can make a ginormous profit if I am given this ability. And so he goes up to these guys and says, I will give you my money. You give me this power. Again, in this moment, Simon is trying to dethrone God. He thinks God is somebody he can manipulate by using his resources to control him. And because of that, what does Peter do? He harshly rebukes him. He looks at Simon and he says, you have no part in this matter. What does that mean? You have no salvation. Yes, Simon had been baptized. Yes, Simon believed something about Jesus, possibly him being a good moral teacher, a miracle worker. But Simon was not entrusting himself to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And how do we know that Simon's not a believer in Jesus? He tries to buy that which God has given. You see, he's attempting to purchase the gift of God. And Simon thought he could earn and he could buy his way into that. Friends, you have to hear me. God's grace is not something you and I can earn. It is something that he always gives. And it is received through faith in Jesus Christ. What you have to hear me say is that your social status cannot save you. Your abilities cannot save you. Your money cannot save you. There is nothing you and I can do to make ourselves any better to obligate God to bring us into his kingdom. Your salvation and my salvation is all because of his grace. And notice what Peter does. He isn't harsh with Simon just to condemn him. Peter is harsh with him to restore him. How do I know? He tells him to repent. And you have heard me say oftentimes that repentance, when God tells you and me to repent, he's not just telling us to stop, to quit what we're doing and just to stay put. But rather, when God tells you to repent and he tells me to repent, he's telling us to come back to home to him. Across the street, we have this desert with these ravines that are pretty steep. 
And if I see one of my kids pedaling a bicycle extremely fast towards one of those ravines, do I just yell for them to stop? And I yell for them to stop. Do I just want them to stop right what they're doing? No, I don't want them to stop just right on that ledge. If you know anything about those ledges, they're not really secure and they're known to fall out. But rather, when I yell for my child to stop, I want my child to turn that bike around away from that which is going to destroy them and to come back to me. And in the same way, Peter is looking at Simon and he says, you need to repent of this wickedness. You need to repent of trying to dethrone God. You need to repent of trying to purchase the gift of God. That is so wicked. And what does he tell him to do? Not just to stop, but to turn back to Jesus and to repent and turn to Jesus for salvation. That is what Peter is trying to do. You see, perhaps like Simon, you have thought of Jesus more as somebody you can manipulate and control. Maybe you wanted, not necessarily Jesus, but you wanted the gifts of Jesus. You wanted your best life now, whatever that means. What you need to do is if that is you, and you are trusting in Jesus more of what He can do for you, rather than in trusting in Jesus for what He has done for you to bring you into a relationship with God, like Simon, you and I need to what? We need to repent. We need to turn from that wickedness and come back to Jesus. And listen to what Peter and John do in verse 25. So after they have testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in, many village, in the many villages of the Samaritans. What did they do? They went home, and on their way home, in each and every village they went to, they stopped and they preached and told them about Jesus. I can almost picture Peter and John publicly talking about Jesus in the villages, sitting in homes, talking about Jesus, talking to other people as they go up and down the, the roads in the villages, telling other people about Jesus. And notice this mission. Peter and John aren't forced to do this. There is nothing in this text that says they are forced to do this, but rather this is just the out natural outflow of somebody who is indwelled with the Holy Spirit, that they will what? Like Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. You see, as we looked at this text, we have seen someone who might have looked like a believer on the outside, but on the inside it wasn't true. They looked like the real thing, but they weren't the real thing. You see, Simon believed something about Jesus, and he was even baptized, but he wasn't a Jesus alone guy. Think about that. He was a Jesus plus his power, Jesus plus his glory type guy. You see, Jesus was more of an addition onto Simon's agenda, and Jesus was more like his personal Santa Claus or genie rather than his Lord. And I can remember watching my parents. I wasn't yet a believer in Jesus watching them get baptized in a pond in Kentucky. And as they were baptized, they said Jesus was their Lord as well as their Savior. And I can remember as a teenager watching that going, Jesus, if you want to save me, sure, I'm down with that. But Jesus, I'm the one who calls the shots. I'm the one who's the Lord of my life. And what you have to understand is you and I cannot trust in Jesus as Savior only. It's a package deal that when we trust in Jesus, He is Savior and He's also Lord. And I came to the point, by God's grace, to see Jesus' Lordship as good in my life. That He is a Creator who is not trying to kill my joy, but to make me full of joy by having my ultimate joy in Him. I have talked with people, friends, who have over the years have gone through great trial, great suffering, 
I've seen people lose all of their health. Like they get sick and the illness just ravages their body. I've seen people who have lost their financial stability because of a decision or because even their faith lost their financial stability. Yet in each and every one of those situations, those people are filled with joy. Why? Because Jesus is not just their Savior, but Jesus is also their Lord and their authority. And think about that word authority. What's at the core of it? Author. And they realize that Jesus is the one who is the author of their salvation, but also the one who is the author of their lives. You've got to hear me. Cauliflower can never be mashed potatoes. Squash can never be pasta. And what you have to hear me say is this. Money can never buy you grace. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that you and I are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so the question you and I have to ask ourselves as we look at this text, are we trusting in Jesus because we want Him to do something for our agenda? Or are we trusting in Jesus because of who He is alone, Lord and Savior? Are you more like Simon? Are you more like those other Samaritans. The question is, which one are you? Because real believers, what do they do? They trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you give us through your son, Jesus. And I just pray that right now, Father, for each and every person sitting here, listening to this right now, watching this right now, I pray, God, that you sweetly remind them of the spirit that you've placed inside of them to be that seal and guarantee that for those of us who are genuine followers of Jesus, who are filled with the spirit, I pray, God, that you just grow that, that assurance in them. Yes, we need to repent. Yes, we need to turn from some sin in our life. But God, we know that is a work of the spirit in us. And so we invite that, asking you to have your way in us, that you are our Savior, but you also are our Lord. And for those of us right now who are trying to figure that out, and, and we realize that we don't have the Spirit's power in our life, that we have His presence in our life, I pray that, God, you give them the eyes to see and the faith to see Jesus and to come to Him and to find Jesus as their ultimate treasure, as their savior, but also as their loving, sovereign, and good Lord. God, we love you and we thank you for this grace. We thank you for your word. And I just pray that you work and have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen.